there's certain ways you can be for someone to support you. So you can be a victim, you can be someone who needs saving, yeah. and then you sort of fit in with then how people can come and save you and, and talk about how you need a voice. But then when you have one, when you're the one sort of saying, okay, here's me wanting to say something, here's me being autonomous, here's me having agency, then that's not so on board with fitting in with that um, narrative of right. what a Muslim woman or a black woman or a minority should, should be. This conversation is about lots of things. Some of the things that it's about that you might want to be aware of before you go in is that it touches on racism and Islamophobia. There's a few incidents of racist abuse that are described. It also talks about mental health issues and therapy. I don't think people should be being asked to be happy in situations that don't warrant that right and sort of the world right now yeah if you're not a rich white man you've probably got things to be unhappy about right hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together i need to get better please make me better i want to get better So today we're getting better acquainted with Wasi. Hello, Wasi. Hi, Dave. We're recording at the, the Royal Festival Hall uh, in front of the Poetry Library in a children's library yeah. space. Lots uh, of Nordic-looking books. Right, it's, yeah, it, apparently I've, I've I kind of read the blurb about it and it's based around a Norwegian library uh, structure. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's tying in a little bit with the Moomin's right. uh, experience that's that's been happening here from time to time. Yeah. So I kind of feel at home with that because I'm, I'm a big Moomin's fan, fanboy. I kind of remember the Moomin's from the TV. Right. But vaguely. Like, I just remember seeing the characters but I don't remember them. Right, like no, storylines at all. No, fair enough. I mean, I'm really into the books, so I have kind of complicated feelings about the various uh, TV adaptations. Oh, like uh, as, like, Well, just like, I don't know, like just that they don't fully get at the the thing that I really love about the, the Moomins. Although they are quite visual because they've got pictures in the books. Yeah. I think the words are quite important. And also the cartoon version, which might be the version that you saw. Yeah. I think it was a Japanese cartoon adaptation, but the, 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 the voices are very American. Right. And that kind of, kind of, ruined it for me it uh, takes in away some from ways the yeah thing with it. although these days i try to be less kind of uh immediately annoyed by American accents or American culture because I've, I've realised that, well you know, apart from the kind of political elements of American culture, I've, I've kind of realised that just hate in America it lets off the UK yes, in lots yeah, of ways, yeah. uh, but also, you know, I know lots of lovely American people, yeah. like it seems like unfair to just kind of like brand them all Everything with the same thing. Awful. Exactly. Yeah. I suppose there's that thing though of at least growing up, I think less so now but lots of, like, all the good stuff is American. Right. Everything comes out of America. And, like, it was aspirational as opposed to, actually, there's stuff other other places. Yes, absolutely. And here. Like, sometimes yeah. I feel like, you know, people are focused on that American dream in this country, like, not even looking around and seeing what's, what's happening here. And certainly growing up... I sang in an American accent and then tried to learn not to do that. Yeah. So I'm aware that, that that same thing I'm criticising people for is in me, you know, as well, like so many things. But anyway, yeah, th- the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? So I think <laughs> I first met you 
at the Media Diversified Trashy Awards. That's right, yeah. Um, and those were the first ones that they the did, first weren't ones, they? Yeah. And I can't remember how I ended up taking the photos there. I'd been in touch with Sam and sort of turned up at this pub and there were a lot of people that I right. didn't know. And then we got chatting sort of with a few other people. Yeah. And that's how I first met you. Yeah, that's right. And then I think since then it's just been Twitter, hasn't it? That's right, yeah. Except for the other day when I bumped into you. Right, bumped just into you randomly, in the street, yeah. yeah. Like, that was an, it was an interesting moment for me to meet people, really, because unlike most circumstances in my life, uh, I was the minority in the yeah. room. Uh, and I was also very apprehensive, I think, because I just I didn't want to be a white man coming into that sort of, into an award about kind of the way that what white culture is kind of represents... Uh, people of colour in the media and be like dominating the space mm. but at the same time I also didn't want to look like I was rude and like I didn't want like you know so there was a lot of like complicated and you know I'm not saying that like yeah. my burden is so much that we should well, all sympathise with oh, me so but like it was a, an interesting moment to meet people yeah and I think when you've got that in mind it's difficult to work out well should I be doing this should I be saying this and you can start sort of second guessing everything that you're yes, saying and yes. doing which I tend to do in life anyway, but <laughs> I can imagine in a situation like that, like, okay, I'm really aware of how I could be dominating or how I could be taking over the space or how easy it is for me to be the default. But then you want to be having conversations with people naturally. And yeah, and also you're aware, I think, I'm, I'm, you know, you're aware, I'm, I'm aware when I'm in those kind of situations as well that any kind of negative feelings towards me are quite justified, like structurally yeah. speaking. And so that makes it kind of even more complicated. Like I obviously want to be liked like anybody <laughs> and I'm desperate for approval. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I'm not going to blame anybody in those kind of situations if they're like, who the hell's this white guy? What? This, this event. Yeah, Um, and I guess I was kind of invited. I I tweet a lot about uh, what media diversified or writers of colour, as they are on on Twitter, what they do, and I've tried to support them in as much as kind of signal boosting for my small signal. You're really good at doing that. I'm I'm really awful at like I'll often want to um, promote something or amplify it. But I'm, I get really stuck in, oh, well, if I do this person, I'll, I'll miss out that person. If right. I, whereas you're, you seem to be really good at sort of going, OK, this week, these people, and this week, these people. And I don't know how much like thinking goes behind that, or well, if it's I, just more like, these are people that have stood out and... Yeah, I'm well, in, gonna... in terms of Follow Fridays, I've got a system uh, for how to like remember like which what like I kind of look through my entire week's tweets and like mm-hmm. that that's that reminds me which people I want to promote. But with with Media Diversified, I've got a kind of permanent every week I, I copy the same tweet and repost it because yeah. I I believe in what they're doing so much. Yes, yeah. But but also the amount of signal boosting I do is also related to in some ways how little amount of money I've got at the moment to actually support people and I feel so guilty uh, that I can't like give to the arts and the activism that I want to yeah. and I've kind of got you know in my mind I've got a list for like if I ever do become fin- financially solvent you know these are the people I'm going to give to yeah but I think I mean this is me being a bit therapy now but when you say actually support I think there is something really massive in amplifying and making people aware of something that they might not come across yeah um and using whatever platform you have to do that i think that is actually supporting and not even just the using the platform but also putting your name to something and saying this is something that i back this is something that i rate i think again is actually supporting 
No, fair enough. I know. I know what you mean. But then you did. You did a very a good uh, thread recently that's true. about having just you know, said yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's. But I think that thread is very relevant because you know, yes, signal boosting, retweeting, sharing is supporting. Yeah. But if that's all that's happening, mm. then it must be a very strange position for the people who are trying to get things off the ground because true. all they're seeing is is a, a, apparent support, but yeah. no actual financial uh, yeah, thing coming I, with that. I think for me, a big part of that was not necessarily at people, or definitely not at people who couldn't afford. Yeah, no, uh, you said to, that Yeah, it's, it's really important that that's, that's not what I was getting at, because I think there are a lot of people who, in a similar situation to you, often in a situation like I'm in that can't afford to put money to things and deliberately then will boost in the way that they can and that's supporting. But I think for me it was more looking at, in the bigger scheme of things, there are lots of ridiculous things that will get money and I can't right. get out of my head that sort of potato salad thing so recently someone was raising money for Teatro Funzi, the theatre company and I was boosting it a bit and, and saying that if that guy who was raising money to make a potato salad can make thousands of dollars then surely people can give to this as well so I think it was something like that that what gets given money as opposed to just notice and also how much sort of boosting happens to maybe awful things that happen. So earlier in the year, a woman was walking down the street, spat on me, and I believe it was Islamophobic, racist. She talked about people like you and that sort of thing. And at the time, it got thousands of retweets. And so many people, and often things like that, when they happen, people are like, what can I do? I wish there was something I could do. I wish I could do more than just... And it's like, you can. Look, here is something you can do. Give money to this thing. Like, support things financially to get off the ground. People make things that you can support. I think that was an interesting contrast you were drawing as well, because, you know, what you're doing with Cut From The Same Cloth, and we'll talk about that a, a lot more later, yeah. but, but that's a kind of positive representation yes. of people. Yeah. And, you know, where people like get on board is in the when negative experiences yeah. have happened and that's a very and, skewed thing yeah and I think that that's part of the feeling is that there's certain ways you can be for someone to support you so you can be a victim you can be someone who needs saving yeah and then you sort of fit in with then how people can come and save you and and talk about how you need a voice but then when you have one when you're the one sort of saying okay Here's me wanting to say something. Here's me being autonomous. Here's me having agency. Then that's not so on board with fitting in with that um, narrative of what a Muslim woman or a black woman or a minority should should be. Right, and it's interesting, you know, again, it's it's a structural thing, like people who look like me, when they're helping or, or like, reaching out to people who've had traumatic experiences, that makes them look good and mm. gives them a sense that they're kind of, they're the ones who step... It's white knighting, isn't it? That's, yeah. the, I think, one of the terms that can be used about that kind of thing. Mm. And, yeah, like, I always find that a, a strange thing to see i try not to uh, hopefully i avoid doing that but then that can go the other way then you can then you can sometimes i'm kind of loath to reach out to people sometimes when they've had a traumatic event because i I don't want to be like 
someone with my structural position yeah. saying to someone, oh, I'm sorry that happened. And then, then, then they might think, well, you know, do something about the structure that you benefit yeah. from. Then. And, and I totally understand that too. And I also wouldn't want that to be the case. I wouldn't want someone to now feel like, oh my God, I heard something awful happen to her, but I, I better not say anything because I'm making her be a victim. Right. And it's not that, but it's, it's keeping that balance and making it be both not neither or just one. Yeah, show up both times, yeah. or like all the time, yeah. rather than just when it makes you look good or makes you think, like when you feel like you're helping someone who's almost lesser than you. Like mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a kind of like putting someone into a child position, isn't yeah. it? Like, I'll come yeah. in and scoop you up and, yeah. and make you feel good and like solve all of those bad people that are attacking you. And like, it's a, yeah, it kind of brushes it all off. Mm. But, you know, since we're since we're we're in person, you know, I am sorry that that happened to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, it's as someone for very very different reasons who's been spat at uh, in my life. Mm. You know, it's 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 it is a big deal. Like, it is a really big deal. Yeah. Like, as a as a kind of teenager, when people spat at me, like I always feel like when I'm talking about my my teenage traumas, if you like, yeah. um, talking about like people people get it if it's violence, but like spitting is almost like they're like, oh, well that's a bit gross, but like it's it's properly yeah. dehumanising. Yes, yeah, yeah, and so it, yeah, I that, mean, and that's yeah. I'm, I'm sorry that you went through that, and you can sort of relate to that in that <laughs> way. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, the the sad thing about our culture is there's so many reasons that people might spit at people. Yeah, Yeah, so the second question, before we kind of like unpick some of the stuff that we're already starting to talk about, the second question that I ask everybody is what do you do now? What do I do now? That's a really good question. I like the now. Work-wise, I'm a therapist. So I'm a person-centred therapist and I'm currently working with a small organisation called South London Refugee Association and they work with asylum seekers and migrants, vulnerable migrants and refugees and I just started there earlier this year. They got funding to start a therapy service and I knew someone that worked there and she got in touch and was like, oh, we're going to be advertising for this therapy service and you should keep an eye on the website and I got in touch and ended up setting up the service and then started as a therapist in like July so I'm working there two days a week and I do one day a week with Women and Girls Network and they work with people who've experienced gendered violence so that's sort of three days of my week and then I'm also a photographer which I still sort of do this weird smile when I say that because it feels really weird to place that on the same level as something that I'm like okay I went to university and I qualified doing that and like that's my that's my job but it feels more real now to say that that no I am I'm I'm a photographer this is something that I also do I've been doing it for a while I've been I've been taking photos since forever so I have this photo of my siblings when I think my brother must have been about one and a half two and he is, what are we, 88? He's going to be 30 next year. So that would have been about 25 years ago. <laughs> so I've been taking photos since, I don't know, 10, 11, whatsoever. They weren't that good then. Um, and then... I mean, they were, they were young. It's young work. Yes, like, yeah. Know, it's, it, I'm sure they were good within the context. They of were the good for they were a 10-year-old, 11-year-old. Yeah. And then it was sort of linked to... I was a speech and language therapist for a while and that was when I first saw a digital camera 
that was sort of like 2005, something like that. I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is a reason for me to get a digital camera now and started mucking about with that. And then I think got my first SLR nearly 10 years ago now and started going to things and taking pictures. So I'd go to poetry nights and take pictures and then go, oh, I've taken these pictures, do you want to share them or whatever? And a lot of comedy stuff, I was really into comedy still quite into comedy and that was from that sort of my first proper job was doing headshots and the pictures for a poster for a comedian called Nadi Kamal and sort of from there being asked to come and take pictures for things being asked to be the photographer at things so like a night called Bang Said the Gun do you know yeah that was where I'd often go and take pictures and when they were at the Meadowlands Festival. And they're like, do you want to come and be our photographer? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that'd be cool. So sort of gradually, I was like doing it a bit more and doing it for other people as opposed to just doing it for myself and sharing it with other people. And then about four or five years ago, I went to an event run by the Body Narratives. Okay, so we've moved location. We're now in the uh, sort of near the members bar, hopefully... Uh, near enough that we have quiet but not so near that we get uh, asked talking. if we're members yeah um yeah so it was what was it Bod- body body narratives that's right <laughs> um and that was this event that was a lot of women of color uh were involved and performed and spoke and i went with a friend of mine and th- there was someone there indigo williams and she's a poet. Her and Leslie Asari had started this thing, which my brain has just gone completely blank. I absolutely know what it's called, but I could, no, I can't. It's gone. I know that um, feeling. That that's happens to really me all awful. the time on it's the like, show. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they started this thing, and they were talking about owning what you do. And uh, I remember I used to say I take photos. Right. And a friend of mine was like you're a photographer I was like no 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 I take photos I take photos and she's like no no you're you're a photographer and I was like okay and after that went home and like made my first cards and they were like handwritten cards like Wassi Danidri photographer hmm uh and so sort of spent the past few years sort of like trying to own that and then last year left the job that I was at at the time and by the end of the year because I hadn't found therapy work which I always thought therapy work is a day job photography is sort of the side gig I was like okay I'm gonna go freelance I'm gonna properly freelance I'm gonna this is what I'm gonna be doing and things sort of happened and an exhibition came up that I wasn't expecting and I I finally own I'm a photographer but then yeah then the therapy job came up unexpectedly as well so 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 I'm both you're now both I'm now both but at um, least you're like now you can say you're a photographer. Yes. Like because you were without you were both like, before. Yeah. Right? But without <laughs> feeling like I'm like faking too much. Right. I sometimes still feel like that, and I don't know if part of it is having this idea that like to be something you have to have studied it or you have to have gone on courses and have documentation saying you're that thing. So yeah, I I'm a photographer and a therapist. Right. And that's kind of why the now is there, really, because yeah. we change what we are, what we re- what we say we do so much in our lives that, like, I'm always aware that if I don't want people to feel like they're defining themselves for forever, forever. Yes. and, yeah. you know, for, for the past as well, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of the reasons. Although, you know, it does mean that sometimes people say things like, you know, I sit, I'm sitting in a room, and then you're like, clever, funny, but, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not exactly the depth I was hoping for. But, yeah, like... 
so wow so there's so much you know there's so much there uh, to unpick anyway first of all you know I, I've seen your photos and they're very good like you know when people are when people are kind of modest or like unsure of themselves it doesn't necessarily communicate to an audience how good their work is so I just want to make sure that that I'm signposting that you know it's good work and Thank people you. should should check it out really check it out check out my work so you know, you've been taking photographs all of those years mm. and, and you know, you started when you were young, so we can see why you became a, a photographer. But why, why did you become a therapist? Mm. So I feel like that's a really long, long answer as well. Um, <laughs> that's all right. We've got time. <laughs> We've got time. So when I was really small, I wanted to be a doctor, really wanted to be a doctor. I don't know where I got the words from, but I wanted to be a neurologist or a paediatrician. And this was from when I was really young. It was sort of set in my head. That's what I was going to do. And then I got to sort of GCSE and was really crap at science. Like I really liked biology. I was really good at biology. Chemistry, I liked it, but made no sense to me whatsoever. I can still remember, like, trying to get my head around moles, like this mole, and uh, I have no idea. I don't know. It made no <laughs> sense. And then physics, yeah, that was just completely out there. And so I was like, well, if I'm struggling with it at GCSE, then that means I'm not going to do very well at A-level, probably not going to get into medical school, and I don't want to spend seven years just, like, working really hard and struggling and not knowing what I'm doing. So I was like, okay... What, what's sort of near to medicine? Well, I could become a nurse or I could become a midwife. And my mum wasn't keen on the idea. And so then I just went off and did a load of A-levels of things that I liked. And that was like biology, French, maths and English. And then a few months in, I remember my dad going, OK, look, we, we need to think about what you actually want to do. You know, if you're going to go to university. And, and I said, uh, well, I like numbers. I like maths. I'll become an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, obviously, doctor, nurse, accountant. And so I went off, I ended up doing economics at Hull. And I did, like, financial accounting as one of the modules. Yeah, I wasn't going to become an accountant. I, I just, it was not, I don't even know where the idea came from, how it made sense to me. But I had started, so I decided to continue and finish the course. And while I was... I think in my third year, a friend suggested speech and language therapy. She was like, oh, you like language, you like languages, you like people. That's sort of a working with people thing. And so I finished the economics degree, but I'd done an Erasmus year and decided I really wanted to go back. I'd done an Erasmus year in Belgium. So I ended up doing an MBA. Not because I thought I was going to do anything with business anymore, but just because I was like, it'd be really nice to go back to Belgium and this would be a way to go back to Belgium and it's really cheap. Um, it's like £700 for an MBA, so I did that. But I think I already knew I wanted to do speech language therapy. So I did that, went and worked, paid off my £1,000 student loan, which just seems ridiculous. Like I, When I first went to uni, they still had grants um, <laughs> and then went and did speech language therapy. And I really enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed sort of the elements of working with people and talking to people. But that was the main bit that I enjoyed. It wasn't the actual therapy so much. And when I started working as a therapist and onwards sort of working in a charity that worked with people with aphasia later, I 
found more and more of what I was doing was actually sitting and talking to people and working out how they're feeling about the trauma of having had a stroke or having their communication affected or lost. It just felt more and more that I was doing therapy rather than speech and language therapy and that's when I started thinking about it and I went and did a part-time course at Lambeth College. That was while I was still working as a therapy project worker and yeah the more I found out about it the more I wanted to do it and I think sort of alongside that is also that whole thing I think a lot of therapists go into wanting to do therapy because they want therapy or they somehow want to be fixed and so like the whole like one of the things when I went and did the postgraduate diploma they talked a lot about the healer needing healing that sort of thing and I think definitely there's that hope there isn't there that well if I can if this works for other people then it'll work for me as well so and I'd done I think I did some therapy or had some therapy after I did my college course which was all right but I think if I hadn't decided it was what I wanted to do it might have been a bit off-putting the person was very nice Uh, she was a nice therapist but she wasn't fantastic right but I think also it's good for me to remember that experience because it's I think really important to know not every therapist for every person right and so if I'd had that experience and not decided to go on and study therapy I might have sort of gone away from it being a bit like oh actually it's not that great is it it's not that useful but then going away doing the therapy course it was very experiential and you had to dig deep and do a lot of work on yourself or or actually like you were faced with a lot of self-awareness and either you could go away and and work on that or just drown in it and so looking back made me realize oh okay maybe part of that was I wasn't actually ready to do therapy I wasn't ready to sort of open up to this woman and definitely part of that was on her we didn't build that relationship and that's a two-way thing but part of it was definitely on me and I wasn't ready and sort of helped me understand when I work with people that like some people might think they want therapy now but not necessarily be ready to go into what they want to go into yeah because it's too much it's you know it's really like you're going in and deliberately making yourself vulnerable to this stranger I mean, I'm, um, I'm currently getting therapy uh, from the NHS and it was like six years of fighting to get to this point. And like one of the things that definitely I feel like is happening in therapy is even though I've been fighting to get into therapy all of this time, yeah. it's like I'm not sure if I am ready at this moment. Mm. Uh, and I've only, you know, I, you know, obviously I'm taking the therapy, yes. but it's limited therapy because yes. it's on the NHS. Same. And so it's like, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think like I've, I, I really feel like I need this therapy. I feel like I want this therapy, but... But then I don't quite know if I'm ready for it yeah. or in this way or mm-hmm. at this time or in this, you know, with this person. Although I like my therapist, I yeah. have to say. And I haven't liked a lot of uh, therapists that I've come across mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. in my journey to this point. Yeah. But like, that, and that's an interesting thing as well. Like, I'm, as, as, already, as already has been acknowledged in this conversation, I'm, you know, a white middle class man. Mm. Uh, and it's still, there's lots of barriers for me to get yeah, therapy. Absolutely. The kinds of groups of people that you're currently working with, there's going to be so many more yeah. barriers. Um, and so it's so important for, for, you know, when you're the first person that they maybe get. Like, mm. it's, it's such an important job you're doing, but a big responsibility. Yeah. yeah. And it, it can, like, like you said, the thing of like the barriers to get into therapy are huge, and it's really crap that something that should be 
fundamental and just available to everyone. I think everyone needs therapy. Right. right. Partly because in the same way that we all need a GP. Um, like you might not always need it all the time, but I think it's something really helpful to be able to fall back on or when things happen. And also I think just the world that we're living in, we're completely surrounded by trauma and sort of exposed to your awful horrible things on a daily basis mm. and sort of within that having to live with the knowledge that we can't necessarily change very much of that as well and so you're you're sort of left with this helplessness and frustration and all, all sorts of things I, th- I think everyone needs therapy and but unfortunately it's the other way around it's being constantly like just with so many other things being cut and seen as some kind of luxury and people talk about this whole taboo around therapy and and talking about mental distress and and unwellness and also there's this big push you know we it's good to talk we should talk but actually where where are people supposed to talk if we don't have the services so you talked about going to get it on nhs i had it on the nhs as well and i remember when i went to my gp and said you know i i think I need to talk to someone I think I might be depressed I think I have all these things going on I need to talk to someone I was asked if I was suicidal and yeah, that's the key to get yeah, you in yeah I, I wasn't suicidal I'm like wow so if if does that mean if this isn't real if I'm if I'm not wanting to take my own life then does that mean that everything else doesn't warrant needing some support and yeah so like thinking about the people that I work with, some of them might not be able to register with the GP, talk less, being able to go in and have this conversation and sort of like I have this assurance that at least me making a fuss at the GP is not going to be a, an issue for me. I don't have to worry about the possibility that they're going to then, I don't know, go on and report me to the Home Office or something like that, right. or the worry that this isn't a right that I have. Then there's a language barrier, then there's just so many things so I mean that's the thing that even if like even if you're somebody who is officially allowed to be in this country a citizen of this country mm. if you're somebody who also you know wears a hijab and is black yeah. they, there is going to be extra fear about talking about how you feel because you don't want it to be misinterpreted because even though you you couldn't individually be reported to the Home Office for that. There are things that people might report you for that would be completely out of order, yeah. but it's, yeah. it's possible. And, yes, yeah. And those kind of barriers are like... Mm-hmm. And I feel like that goes even for people who are... You know, even men, I yes. feel like, yeah, are going to be... You know, white men as well. Like, if you if you are talking about the, you know, the, the worst sides of your thoughts or whatever, people are afraid that those thoughts will then be applied to you know, behaviours, and yeah. then they'll become kind of criminalised or, yeah. like, pathologised yeah. or whatever, yeah. So I remember seeing a guy in Glasgow, and he was referred to me, and in the referral, they talked about anger, and he had a lot of anger, and he came, and it was in part heartbreaking and in part, like, just really familiar, because he was talking about sort of having seen as he grew up so he's older he's maybe in his 50s or so having seen what was happening to different areas of Glasgow like people being pushed out of their homes mm. I think similar things that are happening here so you have council estates being turned into private housing right. you have open spaces being built on turned into private housing and 
people being pushed out of the places where they grew up and where they were. And this was where his anger came from. And so we're having a normal conversation because it's normal for someone to be angry about that kind of thing. It's normal for someone to be grieving and mourning a loss of something that was their life. And yet he'd been labelled as angry and he was, you know, maybe dangerous. So, yeah, definitely. And, like, think about things like prevent. You know, someone goes in as a Muslim, especially a visible Muslim, and it's talking about being angry and talking about the government. It's like, whoa, what, right. what can I actually say in this room that's safe? Yeah, and men of, um, men of colour particularly as well, yeah. the way that they're already seen in the, as, as violent. Yes. Yeah. Like that's, and that is a real problem around this stuff. And you're also speaking to something else, I think, that's really fundamental in the way I think about therapy now, is that, that, that often, in the past at least, therapy, ther- therapy and therapists have located the, all of the problems internally within the individual and it's not it's the structures around us as well like there may be things inside us sure but like anybody that can't acknowledge that there are just real reasons for anger real reasons for like for trauma that Mm. is not to do with something inside us or something that maybe even happened to us in our childhood it might just be that the world we live in is horrible to us yeah and, and you know, I say that as very, someone who's very quite nice to generally. Normal reaction. <laughs> yeah. This is like I think it'd be sort of less normal to just be wandering around happy all the time. Right. This thing of people like talking about you know, think positive and be it's like, well, there's not all that not to be put like definitely there's things to be grateful for and even in some of the most awful circumstances you might be able to find things to be grateful for. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think people should be being asked to be happy in situations that don't warrant that right and sort of the world right now yeah if you're not a rich white man you've probably got things to be unhappy about right yeah I think this can be kind of this metaphor can be kind of overstated because it's it's not the same as interpersonal experience but at the same time it does feel like a kind of social gaslighting of all of us like you know we're always being told no you should be happy but actually every evidence around us suggests that that's not the case exactly. or at least maybe we could be happy but feeling safe for example yeah, would yeah. be very illogical yeah. within this world we're in Absolutely. currently and that's not to say that people shouldn't be like I was going to go to a comedy thing last night I was you know planning to go to a thing tomorrow like people shouldn't be having fun like I think again that sort of one shouldn't cancel out the other yeah. like I think it can be really important to find those moments where you can be happy and can laugh and can find joy but that shouldn't be by force that shouldn't be something that you should be like it shouldn't be a should right absolutely. Um, it, yeah but I mean it's like how you know men shouldn't go around telling women to smile yeah. but of course it's okay if a woman wants to smile exactly yes <laughs> it's yeah. that it's, I yeah. mean it's just that on a social level like yeah. rather than just a one on one interpersonal oh, thing yeah. it's like a social everyone I just feel like we're always being told to smile <laughs> I mean that's one of the reasons I started a night you know about tragedy like I did like I ran a night for a, for quite a few years called Stand Up Tragedy and that was part of the motivation of that it's like no 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 there's a load of sadness that we need to acknowledge and like kind Still of com- communally view yeah. you know and, and you can't forget that like you can't kind of like go around saying well cheer up cheer up like, yeah that's not that's not life and I think that then sort of comes back to you know people who are living with say chronic illness or, right. or mental health issues and and 
who feel sort of afraid to talk about those because then they're the downer. Why aren't they bringing it to the party, all the good bits? Why are they bringing people down? Like them just talking about their life and that particular period that's quite crap is seen as a negative thing, whereas it should just be seen as just as welcome as when they're talking about the good bits and when they're going through good periods or other people who are celebrating things, they're all equally relevant yeah. and equally good to bring. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, one of the things that... when I when Because I, I, I sit down with people beforehand and ask them what they want to talk about, and one of the things that you, you said you'd like to talk about is your upbringing, and I guess that's going to intersect, as, as you said at the time, uh, with faith to a certain extent. Yeah. And, like, maybe as a way to lead into that. So, recently, I had a guest on the show who wears a hijab, and she was saying that since Brexit, she's found the climate has uh, has become actually better for, for Muslims living in Britain because okay. she feels like everyone's so angry with Trump that people aren't as angry with Muslims at the moment. Now, it's an unusual perspective that it I is. haven't heard generally, yeah. and I didn't challenge it that much because uh-huh. it's her experience, yes. and, and I suspect her experience of the world kind of filtered through the friendship groups that she might have and what mm-hmm. they're concerned with. Yeah. I mean, has that been your experience? No. <laughs> to, put it, to put it shortly, no, it hasn't. Um, right. I think, I mean, things have been happening. Things, awful things have been going on. Like, and specifically uh, Islamophobia and racism has been happening since forever. Right. I think it's been getting worse before Brexit. So I grew up sort of between Kent and South London like Brixton just up the road from Brixton now in Camberwell and when I was younger definitely I I was really oblivious anyway I was really like talking about the American dream earlier I was once accused of having the American dream and I was all like yeah I'm gonna go to America and go on a road trip and America's wonderful ah. and I look back and I'm like Ugh. but also I was very young um <laughs> but like so I was completely oblivious but also sort of thinking about sort of my teens and 20s where I experienced sort of overt racial abuse was never in London. It was always, like, I went to uni in Hull. Right. I worked down in Portsmouth in Gosport. In Gosport, I was followed through the street by these three guys yelling at me. Um, so I always thought of London, especially South London, as being sort of a safe haven and somewhere where it, it was, like, safe. And, and then sort of in, say, the past three, four, five years... That's definitely something that's changed. And I, I'm like hearing from other people's experience, but also from my own. So in Boston, being told to go home. Right. Uh, in Camberwell, this guy coming up to me, you people, people like you, uh, why are you here? You need to get out. I remember in Soho as well, this guy who was, we were all still at the bus stop and he was with his partner, started again, the whole go home thing. And each of those incidents felt really, I think, more hurtful because they were in spaces where I thought, these, these are safe spaces. Right. And I think that's a very naive thing, especially with Soho. This guy was with a male partner, and I thought, he's gay, he's going to have experienced bigotry. So he obviously right. wouldn't be, and it's like, 
that was a stupid thing to think. So it, it's become more apparent to me just because of like where these things are happening that definitely things have been sort of on a downward slide for a while, not just since Brexit. Right, that's um, important to say, for yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, I think 9-11 yeah. and 7-7 yeah. um, were probably more likely periods where that started the whole idea of war and terror and stuff had then sort of started legitimizing like islamophobia right. and, and that sort of racism absolutely and and since brexit no i haven't seen things get better for muslims definitely not those who are visibly muslim it's been awful um so i mentioned that woman's about me and i remember sort of part of the awfulness of that was knowing it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Right. Like, the, the day yeah. after that happened to me, I heard about this girl and her friend on the underground who were pinned against the wall by this guy and people who'd been victims of acid attacks. And yeah. and so thinking, well, this is a relief, she just spat. It wasn't yeah. physical violence in, in that sense, which is horrible to even be able to right. think, you know, that that's... It's, well, at least it's not worse than it was, sort of thing. Um, but, I mean, that's a very natural reaction to have to any kind of trauma anyway. Yeah. Like, like that's how I think about events in my childhood. I'm like, at least it wasn't this, or at yes, least it was, it's yeah. not as bad as that person, so I shouldn't be that upset about it. Mm-hmm. But it's still, you know, it's the level awful. of upset that, yeah. that people have is, 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 is not even related to the, no. to the actual event necessarily anyway. No. But that's, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to get that on kind of, on, on, on mic, like the, to, 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 a, an alternative view to, yeah. to that idea that and things have got better. And that's not to negate her no, experience. No, no, like, no, so I think they're both true. Been her experience. So me growing up, like if someone had said to me, you know, have, have you ever experienced racism? I'd have been like, no, everyone's really nice. Right. And I can look back now and see at least microaggressions, which are racism, like microaggressions makes it seem like they were smaller or somehow not... I mean, microaggressions add up to, to macroaggressions, yeah. don't they? Like, the, enough of them yeah. is kind and of... And especially when you, once you're aware of them, you'll, you then have that whole doubt thing. Oh, was it racism? Is it something I should have said something about? Was it, you know, am I just, is it in my head? But, like, I look back and I think about things at school. Like, so, think about upbringing. I was privately fostered from when I was about three months old. And so I lived between home with my parents and in Kent in Tunbridge with my foster parents so my parents like referred to them as nannies it was not an uncommon thing amongst definitely West African community sort of I think 70s 80s where parents might be here working studying but also starting family and rather than paying someone to come and look after the children or taking the children to them daily. I think it was possibly cheaper to have the child go and stay with the family for the week. But then I know in other situations, the parents might actually have gone back to Nigeria and left the child for months on end and then coming. Um, So it's different situations, different people. But for us, it was being there generally during the week. My mum might come down or we'd definitely come up at the weekends and then later on in school holidays. So, yeah, I grew up in Kent I think I went to primary school in Brixton for about three years uh, during a period where my mum wasn't working and then went back to Kent for secondary school. So I feel like I had sort of these two parallel lives going on uh, that were very, and they felt at the time very parallel. Now they feel much more like crossed over, but then they were, it was two 
very separate lives going on. Like my foster parents are white, very, you know, clearly working class, not religious in any sense whatsoever. Um, sort of like go to church for weddings kind of thing. And then at home, it was my parents who are Nigerian, Muslim, sort of more and more practicing as, as years went on. Yeah, it was weird. Like when I was younger, feeling not quite of either right. world and just even in practical terms so like during the week you're at school so you go to school you come home do your homework and whatever and at the weekend is when you would meet up with friends but at the weekend I was in London right. and like maybe going to Madrasa but not really having friends in London um, having friends in Tunbridge but not really being able to spend time with them and then also just spending a lot of time trying to work out who am I and, and where do I fit in? Do I fit in anywhere? Well, I'm Muslim, but then what does that mean and how how does that play out here? And I think it wasn't till sort of later teens that I started. I mean, I suppose that's normal for everyone, though, that you start working out your identity and who you are, but it just felt like I had this just really weird dichotomy of what my life was yeah. at the time. I mean, I can see why. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, it, yeah. And I think weirdly, or maybe not so weirdly, there, there were certain things. So, like, being Muslim, was I was very definite in that, that that's, I, I was Muslim and I, like, for example, I pray five times a day and that sort of thing. So I remember at school, I must have been sort of, 14, 15 at this time and asking, you know, is there somewhere at school that I can pray? And I prayed in the dark room. Like, they had a dark room and they are like, oh, well, no one comes in here during lunchtime. That's interesting. So you can... Interesting that you became a photographer. <laughs> yeah, I never thought that. <laughs> it, was, it was instilled from an early age when people started going out, like, going to clubs and things like that say at uni I wasn't doing that and I wasn't drinking I think I went through in my first year at least I went through this like really hardcore phase as well and was like my name's Wasila yeah I don't sit with boys and I don't you know yeah it's (laughs) it's pendulumed a lot the sort of my faith and how I've interpreted it and understood it and, and sort of practiced it. But you're, I mean, you're still a, you're still a Muslim. I am still a Muslim. I'm still a Muslim, and I think it's still. I don't think it's going to stop going through different iterations and me wondering, what is this the right way and this and I'd much rather it be that than me assuming that I had any kind of certainty and that I know it and this is definitely right. And right. so I'm. I'm up for that. It would be it would be nice to have that certainty. I can understand the comfort in having that absolute certainty that this is right and this is definitely sure. Like I'm, I'm definitely sure of that. And a part of me would like to have that, but another part of me like quite likes having. It, it feels like I've got space to be able to be different and to sort of have swung from you know we totally celebrate Christmas to I'm not going to have any friends who are boys to I'm, now I'm, I'm part of the inclusive mosque so I'm a advisory board member and I've been with them sort of for the past year and started going there well I got I heard about them on Twitter and some friends from a group that I've been part of an ecology group had done some stuff with them and I was like I must check this out when I'm back in London and then they got in touch and asked me to come take photos uh, like I think 
a jammer and then an Eid event and that was finally me going there and since then just felt like finding this space where it's inclusive but and within that inclusivity it's inclusive of different expressions of faith so it's not you have to come here and if you come here you mustn't wear hijab or if you come here you must believe this 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 and that just come here and don't impress anyone else but have your own have your own interpretation of islam so your islam doesn't have to be one thing for you to be accepted here right um which i think can often be the case in the majority of places whether it be a more traditional or conservative interpretation or a more liberal yeah. which then sort of swings the other way so like saying that then women can't wear certain things still within that there's going to be difficulties and working out well how do we do this how do we have someone who has a much more traditional understanding and someone who has a more esoteric understanding and how do, how do we have them be in the same place and that be a, a space that still is welcoming to both of them so it's it's not it's not easily done but it feels like a space that at least works at making that happen. What you were saying earlier on about how London is less feels less of a safe space now, mm. like that's something that even me as a white man has noticed. Mm. Like the 10 years, maybe more than that, that I've been in London, I've seen London change the way it feels about its own population. Yeah. Which is not to say that racism didn't exist in London before, it did, but it's definitely, it's definitely, like maybe it's a good thing in some ways for us to feel less safe in some ways because like this idea of London being the answer, this cosmopolitan kind of utopia is also a bit suspect. Mm. But at the same time, it feels immeasurably sad to see communities that did rub up against each other in a more like supportive and collaborative way that going away. And it it sounds like there's a kind of sense of of that old thing that that I kind of associate with London happening in, in the inclusive mosque that you're going to, that people are rubbing up against each other and finding kind of ways to support each other whether they're you know the same people or, uh, yes, or not yeah, you know and yeah, that's yeah. that's it's great that there still is some little pockets still trying to kind of like cling on to something that was good about London and yeah. it, it must be a strange thing for you to have witnessed mm. um, and particularly you know if you were kind of fostered with during the week with a white family mm. like you must have a, a, a very kind of more complex or a different uh, view on on race and yeah. racism mm. uh, than, than, than many people who've uh, only experienced their family background and then gone into white spaces yeah. how would you feel that's influenced the way you think around those issues that's a big question so that is a big question <laughs> so sorry um that's right <laughs> <laughs> um I think it probably well I'm not sure it's difficult to know what what influences what right so it's difficult to know if I'm just kind of oblivious by nature and <laughs> <laughs> I just I sort of float through I'm, I'm the kind of person that it takes a long while for me to notice office politics and like I'm, <laughs> I'm just like no 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 lots of nice people I work with uh. and then suddenly find out like people want to kill each other or something um <laughs> Yeah, disclaimer, no one I know wants to kill anyone. Um, but uh, So it's, it's difficult to know if that's just part of my nature where I sort of just float through things and then gradually start noticing them. Um, or if it's because I had that upbringing where, like, quite obviously I wasn't white, but didn't necessarily experience like, things in the same way that 
my age mates in London experience growing up and being in Tunbridge at that time in some ways felt like there was some sort of cocoon experience of of not really experiencing the rest of the world I, I don't know if that even makes sense like so being like one of the only black people in town literally so when I went to secondary school for example I went to girls grammar school I was the only black person in the school throughout my time at school so for the is it seven years I was there I was the only black girl there were um, two Asian girls and that was it throughout the whole school so it wasn't like just in my year it was throughout the whole time I was in the school and I don't know if because of that there wasn't as much racism as there would have been if there were more of us if that makes sense like almost like maybe we were tokenistic in and so could be treated as such rather than treated as I I don't know I I don't I really don't know I honestly I, I definitely experienced some racist comments but not overtly and not like I'm sure that the the person saying those things didn't think they were malicious so an example was I remember I once demonstrated like how we pray so how Muslims do salat the like the actions and so on and one of them is you prostrate and your face is flat on the floor right and I remember the teacher going oh that'll be why you have a flat nose (laughs) ha 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 and at the time I think I laughed as well I thought it was hilarious Uh. it was very funny and it was later it was like kind of racist and so those kind of things and also it's not appropriate for a teacher to make jokes about people's physical appearance regardless seriously you know but at the time so this is what like going back to my obliviousness at the time I was just like oh she's making a joke haha it's funny right but so those kind of comments those kind of things and funnily I think more so than now there was a thing probably more around my class and right. how and I, I still I'm working out like this whole class thing it's just a real weird thing for me because right. so my parents came from Nigeria having like my mum was a teacher my dad like studied business when he came here he like became a director of this company that was like started up amongst him and, and some friends of his uh, a housing association whereas when my mum came I remember she, she she had to start sort of as a chambermaid and as a right. cleaner and doing those sort of things my foster parents both left school sort of pre or early teens and like one worked in a shop and then in a factory the other one was a HGV driver and so at the school that I went to when I went to the school again like happy wassy just you know oh I'm at a grammar school I happen to be here because my mum has aspirations of me you know getting into a really good university and I did well in my 11 plus and not really it's only realising sort of this difference in terms of class as I started like getting a bit older and going to people's houses and seeing oh so like sort of five of us in one room isn't the norm like I didn't have my own bedroom till I went to uni and that for me was just 
not that was yeah. just how it yeah. was and like going to people's houses and they have like their bedroom and then they have a playroom and a den and they have this and that and it sort of gradually started filtering in like oh these are different lives and I remember when I was 15 or so I started working as a cleaner in the school and again it never crossed my mind that this was a weird thing to do yeah. it's like I need money this is a job that I can do I've pro- you know, I chat to lots of people so I'd probably chat to the cleaners and just like yeah they seem like nice people like I could do that. It, it didn't cross my mind right. that like that was a thing that wouldn't be considered and I remember I was doing it once and there was this girl in my year who wasn't nice and like she made some com- like sneering comment about the fact that I was cleaner and that was like the first time it even occurred to me that this was something that would be seen as somehow lesser or right. below it like it just didn't cross my mind so I think that was more a thing where, like sort of class as but like a, a differentiator in being in the school right. than race in the right. way that I experienced it then being in London I felt much more of an outsider I sounded posh by then I had no idea of you know what was the right thing to say or how things were said and, and that sort of thing right youth culture youth you've missed cu- out youth. Um, <laughs> I, I remember once trying to like lessen what for me like it was a really posh voice and just yeah it was just ridiculous it was don't ever do that um, <laughs> just it was wrong but feeling like I listened to the wrong music and I had the wrong references and that sort of thing and so it was I think more their feeling out of place and then I think things sort of slowly started to meld a bit better once I started uni I suppose because everyone is different at uni and everyone is new and then you and you can decide who you are um, but then university changes people's class as well. As well. Class is really fragmented now, which has led some people to think it doesn't matter, but that's not true. No. But it's really fragmented. It's not, like when I think of my own class, like it's, it's shorthand to say I'm middle class. Mm. It's not quite right. Yeah. There's, there's some complexities around that. Yeah. But, you know, you don't want to give people a, a paragraph. You know, structurally I'm middle class, I benefit from that. Yes. So therefore... Yeah. It's easier to say I'm middle class. Yeah. Most people's class is more complicated yeah, than absolutely. the one that we kind of give yeah. initially. Yeah, yeah. So at uni it felt that just that there was so much difference that it was okay to be different as opposed to... I think university was... I think it's a bit... It's, it's not true to say it's where I stopped feeling so much like it was I I needed to fit in but there was a lot more space for difference yeah Um, and then it was much later when I was doing my speech and language therapy degree at Sheffield was definitely where I started to feel like all the different parts of me were all acceptable so like I think meeting Muslims who were just very just like well I do this but you do that and those are both okay and so having like that's those were sort of got really long-term strong friendships with Muslims like starting from also like bringing in other parts of myself like so I joined the film unit because I'm not like a movie buff but really love film and was able to hang out and 
like be quite nerdy and like just do all, like all these different elements of myself like I was Nigerian like I stopped feeling like I had to be English just yeah all the different bits were okay right I mean that's a great great place to get to I mean and I think that is one of the beautiful things about university is you can it's not just as it's not just that you can reinvent yourself you can kind of recalibrate yourself you can find all the bits of yourself I, I had a a very different but similar experience of like at university was where I started to I mean I, I went too far the other way I was militantly myself for a while and I have had to learn that, how to was be that? what was that well it was well the the, the kind of the worst, like the most obnoxious kind of example of being militantly myself was uh, when I first met my partner. Uh, I was, we were there early in the morning to to go have a creative writing seminar, and I was reading the Guardian, right? Uh, which I don't even have the same kind of attitude towards now, anyway. But I was reading the Guardian, big broadsheet days, like on the floor reading it, and she kind of like awkwardly was like, you know, hey, you know, it's quite early in the morning, isn't it? And I. I I popped the newspaper down, looked out from over it and said, I like to start every week with writing. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, it's so obnoxious. And then, like, popped it straight back up. I mean, it's amazing that we've been... I mean, we've been together for 16 years. I don't know how that happened, but, like, certainly the first six months of knowing me, she didn't think very highly of me uh, for, that, for that reason. But that was because I'd been not allowed to be myself yeah. for so long yeah. that I was, like, trying to be... And, I, that, I, you know, to a certain extent, that was almost a, opposed to myself as well. Like, it was early in the morning. Mm. I was also tired. Yeah. Like, you know, but anyway. Uh, but, yeah, it has been a real pleasure, like, getting better acquainted with you today. I've, like, you know, we haven't really known each other that much before now. No. Um, and I feel like I, I've learned so much more about you. And, uh, you know, even at the end, I've managed to give you kind of, like, an anecdote about one of the patheticest moments of my life. So I guess we've had ex had an exchange there. The last question I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Don't feel like this needs to be a short bit of the conversation. Because, <laughs> it's like, you know, this is going to be the longest bit of the... <laughs> yeah. But, like, yeah, like, so... Yeah, do you have anything to plug? I do. I have things that I'm involved with and just things that people should, I think, get involved with as well. The first thing is a book called Cut From The Same Cloth. The editor of that is a woman called Sabina Akhtar, who is, I think, poker book reader on Twitter. That's right. And she got in touch earlier this year, not that long ago, actually, and asked if I wrote and would I be interested in being part of this anthology that was going to be written by hijabis, women who wear hijab. And I was like, oh, well, um, I sort of, I mean, I had a blog, never really wrote that much, I've written a bit of poetry. And, well, I've written a few pieces, actually, for, like, Ceasefire and Open Democracy, and they're the same piece, actually. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm not, like, not really selling myself. I was like, well, yeah, maybe. And, like, sent her a few bits and and she was like yeah that would be really cool it'd be really cool to have you on board I was like yeah okay uh and said yes to this thing which still I'm still quite scared about having said yes because uh, I'm gonna have to produce some, something good, good enough to go in a book with other people who are gonna write fantastic things but also like I have quite high standards so it has to be something good enough that I would want to buy this book. Right. Because I'm, like, plugging it away, and I want, I don't want to plug something that's going to be sort of mediocre or... Uh, I, I want it to be really excellent. So I'm going to be part of this book, and it is going to be really excellent. And to make it happen, we need people to 
support it so to pledge from i think from 10 pounds you can pledge on the unbounders site so those are the publishers um unbound publishers and they do lots of books based on crowdfunding yeah and so this is one of them so like the good immigrant so we've started crowdfunding for that i think we're at approximately 30% which is amazing and i always think it's just incredible when people give their money to things that don't even exist yet right, and they're like that's right. a lot of faith <laughs> and trust to put in something to go i believe you people are going to produce something great have the money to do that but also like they're buying a book and like i said it's going to be excellent so um yeah i mean it's not charity no it's not not at all it's not charity you're buying a book and helping to make that book and helping to make it happen and i think there's something really important about so sort of linked back to what we were saying before about supporting people who whose voices maybe not platformed in this way so who are often presented as and who often are people who experience islamophobia in its worst ways i think partly from being most visible so if you have someone who's muslim wears hijab i think you're more likely to be targeted by a random islamophobic person than someone who doesn't and is you know you don't quite know yeah so it just reminded me of this joke by Nazim Hussain he's talking about these racist attacks that were happening in Australia and he's just sort of like you know they're not going to come up to you and ask you are you a home student or are you um, <laughs> are you one of those foreigners you right. know so like people will go on visibility right. and unfortunately being someone who does wear hijab you're probably more likely to be victim of something mm, horrible and so it's really nice to be able to take back the narrative and take back being spoken about and actually going well these are the things i want to speak about might not have anything to do with wearing a hijab might not have anything to do with being muslim might have everything to do with that but i get to choose this being our voice not someone else's speaking for us well it's so important i think as well like for everybody really to kind of start to realize that islam and and muslims they're not one kind of person as well like this idea of this monolith how are we still saying this i know i know it is ridiculous and but and yet we are we're still saying this we're still having to say this so i think it's really cool that there'll be sort of 15 women linked only by the fact that they are women who wear hijabs that's it that might not be that important in the grand scheme of things but that's visually how like how how we're seen as oh hijabis you know they're hijabis therefore monolith and so these are hopefully going to be 15 essays about whatever yeah written by people who happen to be hijabis so that's cut from the same cloth please support it other things i'm involved in a campaign called against borders for children schools abc so last year in september the department for education brought in two new questions on the school census so all pupils have to complete the school census but they brought in two questions asking for country of birth and nationality of children and it sort of came out that this was hopefully going to be like hopefully for Theresa may going to be part of the hostile environment was going to be a way to have children who 
were undocumented at the bottom of the list for like school places and then sort of realised that that was against their human rights. It's like, well, how can we angle this differently? And then started talking about it being to do with provision at schools for people who speak a different language. You're not asking about language, you're asking about where they were born, which has nothing to do with anything. And then it also, because it was a ridiculous thing to be asking, but also because the guidelines were really unclear had it being interpreted in really awful ways in schools. So you had schools asking only children with maybe foreign-sounding names or black and brown children where they were born and not white children or asking kids to bring in their passports, taking kids out of class and asking them rather than their parents where they were from. just was put into practice in really awful ways as well. And it's not compulsory. And again, that wasn't made clear right. uh, to schools. And, and so you had these these things happening there's part of me that's just as annoyed at the fact that this is going to be bad data because it's not compulsory so (laughs) like they're saying well it's not compulsory you don't have to do it we're not being hostile really so it makes no sense that it exists it shouldn't exist because of the the fact that it is linked to creating this hostile environment It's, it's linked to othering again and making it more fearful for children of people who are undocumented to right. come to school. Um, Everybody in this country has to kind of face up to the to the to what you're talking about in terms of the hostile environment. It's the, a the, very the, very real thing. There's so many people working in public services for all the right reasons, but when you get an authoritarian, potentially fascist government, then you've got to like think about what you're going to be utilised to do. And I know yeah, that like absolutely. nurses are fighting yes. against what they're being asked. So to you've play. got like docs, not cops, because like again yeah. in GPs in hospitals even people are being asked to ask where people are from before they'll treat them right. um, like a friend studying psychology I think was saying well, but yeah but they can't do that in a hospital it's like they can and they are being asked to like right. this is happening this is happening in, like you say in all the different areas of service in housing and, and so on so this is a very widespread thing and this was sort of one more step to try and get that and we need to get rid of it and sort of the campaign managed to get them to uh, talk about it in the House of Lords. They stopped having it done in early years. It's made the government have to go back and sort of clarify on their guidelines. But it's still it's it's still here and we still need to get people to sort of refuse to provide it. So if everyone's doing that, they haven't got any data at all. Not just right. if, you know, it's, it's still going to sort of single people out if it's only people who might be affected negatively by it that are refusing and resisting right. it. it so it needs to be... Yeah. Again, that whole thing of, of this is what you can do. This is something that you can do. This is actual support that you can provide. Like, don't give this information. Refuse to give it. You can legally do it. There's templates on the school's ABC website. You know, get in touch if you want to support the work that ABC is doing. It's quite a small group. It's not necessarily apparent. A great name, though. And, I th- and the, the work that you've done has been really impressive. Like, for a small group, yeah. you've achieved some great We've had things. very good people on board. But, but it's also important to, like, as you were saying, for people to, to recognise that even though things have been achieved, we're not there yet. There no, still needs to be no. more pushing still, Definitely. Us. I think one of the reasons it was so successful so early last year was because there was this big push. People were really outraged and like couldn't believe that this was happening. It was like, what next? Are we going to go back to stars on jumpers right. and stuff? You know, what, how, how far are we going to go out to mark out children who are seen as other and different? But that outrage needs to continue and it's right. really hard to maintain that 
degree of anger and, and so on but we need that we need that level of support and people to know it's still happening they're still pushing this through now I think most recently they've said there'll be a deadline to when information can be retracted so at the moment it can still be retracted but there'll be a deadline to when p- parents can say actually I don't want that information in there so it's really important that right. people do it and in the past they've shared that information with the home office right. so they have shared it for immigration purposes I think it was like was it 1,500 children a month right. details they were stuff. sharing and so even though now they've said oh, okay we won't share this particular information with them well you, you've flopped to doing that you can flip back to doing it again like right don't and trust if, the government. If, you know, and if you're listening to this and you care about children, if, if you think of yourself as someone who cares about children, you've got to understand that that means you care about migrants, that means you care about undocumented people. Mm-hmm. Like, whether or not you kind of have whatever attitude to adults, like, kids are... Uh, are different from that like I've I, I worked with children for the under fives for years I know so many lovely families who I'm sure are being affected by yeah. these kind of policies and this current climate and or, you know or even makes me so angry. That, like going like taking it back you might not care about children that's that's a yeah, that's valid true. that's a that's valid true. you know you, you know why should you care about other people's children it's fair like I think often people are sort of being forced to care about just because they're kids they're like okay right. they're, they're they have you know right, maybe less defense too. and less like <laughs> yeah. adults are people too but also I think just taking it even back if you care about like just basic human rights right. and like your right to privacy as a as a person and your right to not having to have your information readily available to different government agencies right. then you should care about yeah, this. self-interest like let, let's absolutely. let's make it just self-interest yeah, absolutely. like uh, yeah everyone should care about this right and, and this whole idea of well if you haven't done anything wrong well i'm, I'm like it doesn't stop there yep. it doesn't stop at just no that's look at where we are now so like this whole idea of if you haven't done anything wrong it's it's absolute crap to put it politely because <laughs> um no one should have to have their data just readily available to the government why why would you think that that was an okay thing right. and if you like to quote like is it nimola if you're someone who likes to quote like you know first they came for that po- mm. that poem they're gonna you, come for you we're in, in that we're in that they're poem come now for you and we're near they're the coming end. for people <laughs> so <laughs> right you know yeah, and and you know you know to to my fellow white people, your whiteness will not protect you forever. No. Like there are other factors that will mean that yes. they will come for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and was uh, have you got other things to other things to plug? to plug? I mean, I'm a photographer. Hire me. I'm a good photographer. Wow. Um, yes, I take good photos. I am. I mean, I think that's the good thing about being like a bit of a perfectionist is if I'm taking photos for you, I'll take good photos. I don't like to produce bad work. <laughs> Another reason why the book's going to be great. So, yes, I am available. Please do hire me. Look me up. I think if you just Google my name, my website should come up. Like, just Google Wassi Danaju, like or Wassi Danaju Photography. Yeah. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes yeah, too. But cool. I do want to plug the Inclusive Mosque, not for its own sake, but just for people knowing it's there. Yeah. So I came to it through friends and sort of through this whole journey of trying to find a space where I felt like I could practice Islam in a way that was right for me. And I hope that other people will come to it as well, even if it's just out of curiosity. And it's not only open, like it's the first sort of mosque space that I've been in that has been, that has felt really open to non-Muslims. 
Um, so you have people there whose partners maybe are atheist or another religion. I think inclusive mosque spaces can often be thought of as being inclusive for, say, people of different genders or sexualities. There's actually this inclusiveness of different faiths as well. There's this inclusiveness of, like, this is the first place where I've seen Sunni people leading and Shia people leading and, and different elements of Islam being taken into account. First place where I have seen a number of people who are physically disabled who are considered. It's the first place where I've seen people's dietary requirements. Like, so it's right. that thoughtfulness and that idea of inclusivity being in every direction, not just about, oh, uh, well, we're happy for gay Muslims to be here and be out and, and that being a space, I think that's really important because I, I think that's a, a very big thing very in, in, in mainstream mosques. But I think that inclusivity also is... In, in all directions. I mean, it sounds like it's a great model for anybody who wants to do anything inclusive, re- regardless yeah. of religion or, or any yeah. of those elements. I think it's really hard to have that kind of... Like, it can be really nice to have that as an ideal, but go, well, it's, it's far too much work. Um, we'll try, but, you know, if we don't attain it, then... Nah. But it's... So it's... I think it's really great to see that in practice and to see, well, it is possible and we're tiny and, yeah, we manage it, so everyone else step up I don't think there's anything else particularly I want to plug <laughs> I mean you, you know you, you are a, a person I mean you, you know I think who plugs like really a lot on like you're, you're always supporting other people's like things that they do as yeah. well like I mean I know you, you, you sort of said I was good at doing that earlier on it's quite funny because I think of you as someone who's very good at doing that and you, I've seen you supporting so many things yeah. that I can see why you're like oh have I got everything <laughs> there's so many there's things I things. love oh yeah the Black Girl Festival is happening on the 29th of October <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I think they're still they're, they're doing, now they're in a sort of the stretch phase of, of their fundraising um, so they can offer all these like workshops free and and other stuff and I'm very excited about that well brilliant well if you think of anything else that you, that you, you missed I, you know I can always put a, a, another comment at the end yeah. to, to tell people about those things uh, and the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience okay thanks for listening goodbye bye everyone and you can hear my solo show What About the Men Mansplaining Masculinity as a podcast it's available on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast feed it's the last podcast that went out on that feed you can also read more about the show over on its website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk I've been thinking a lot about my dad and based on that thinking I've been putting together some kind of personal essays I guess I'm putting one of them out on Medium every Thursday for the next couple of months. They're called Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad. I'll put a link in the show notes and if you follow me on Twitter, Goosefat101, you'll be able to see there when the next one comes out. As well as making Getting Better Acquainted, I also co-produce and, I guess, star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like getting better acquainted on facebook and you can find getting better acquainted on itunes soundcloud those kind of places 
But remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.